0: Hey, we never want to miss a chance to say thank you to people who served and sacrificed so that we can enjoy our freedom. Uh, so truly from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for uh, those hard years that you devoted to keep our country safe and strong. We really appreciate that. Uh, we are doing a discipleship challenge and uh, the uh, time is limited to like December 9th. So pick up a discipleship challenge card if you don't have one, get after it. We just ordered the, the t-shirts, the hats, Uh, There's going to be great, there's going to be like coffee tumblers and everything. So the gifts are coming, they're waiting for you. You just have to complete the challenge. Everything that you need for that is at the connection table in the lobby. So go ahead and find that on your way out. Also, we are going to take up our next phase two facility offering on Sunday, December 16th. So many of you turned in pledge cards for phase two. Part of your pledge could have been giving a one time gift. Uh, or a periodic gift, we would love for you to target Sunday, December 16th for that gift so that it goes toward this year, uh, toward your offerings, and also so that we can get ahead of the curve on paying in cash now we haven't even had to draw from the bank loan yet. We've uh, you've been so faithful in giving. We've just been paying cash as the draws have come. So, the longer we can do that, the better the more we'll save on interest. So, please consider giving your next phase 2 offering on Sunday, December 16th as a year-end offering. All right, we're going to get into the word together. So, you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, verse 28. We've covered a lot of ground. Last week's sermon was very impactful. It was on uh, what the Bible says about homosexuality. If you're curious about that, all of our sermons are available on the app and online. We even did Q&A at the end, uh, which went over really well. And so I sent out a follow-up email with answers to some questions we didn't get to on Sunday morning. Um, But here we are in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. The title of the sermon is Who Escapes Judgment? And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, your future We're going to talk about your future. And I don't mean your future like in a month. I mean your future the day that you stand before a holy God to give an account for your life. I don't know about you, but I I like The Simpsons. Sometimes I watch The Simpsons. Any Simpsons lovers in the room? The Simpsons? Maybe you're too ashamed to admit it in church that you still watch cartoons. But there's one scene in The Simpsons where uh, Homer and Marge are talking, and just before Homer Simpson mixes a bottle of vodka with an entire jar of mayonnaise and mixes it together and drinks it, Marge says to him he will soon regret his choices in life. And Homer, with a wave of the hand, replies, that's a problem for future Homer. Man, I don't envy that guy. That's his response. He's drinking a jar of mayonnaise and he says, that's a problem for future Homer. So many of our choices in life We just think that it's not my problem right now. It's it's not a big deal right now. I don't have to worry about it right now. That's a problem for future me. And here's the issue. One day we will stand before a holy God to give an account for our entire life. And I'm today going to talk to future you, okay? I'm going to talk to future you the person you will be when you stand before a holy God to give an account for your life. It's, it's too late when that time comes to ask yourself if you're ready, all right? The time to find out if you're ready for that is right here and right now. So let's pray, and then we'll talk to future you about what's coming. Father, open our ears, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to see what your word says uh, about you, about us, about our world, about judgment, about your great plans. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in chapter 1, verse 28, we're continuing on. with. The, it's like the, the text is still going on, and we've been pausing it, and then continuing. So we've covered so much already, but continuing in chapter 1, verse 28, the Apostle Paul continues in the book of Romans and says this, "...since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not to be done." Where does the problem, where does the sin, where does all the uh, corruption in the world come from? Well, we had a wrong mind toward God, wrong spirit and heart toward God, and then it drifted downward from there. So the source of all of our problems inside and outside of us is uh, what we thought about God and how we've treated God. Everything else has come from that. So the first question you can jot down in your bulletin is this. What is sin? What is sin? That's what the whole first few chapters is trying to nail down. What is sin? What does it do to us? What does it do to our world? Uh, What is sin? And I've got a working definition up here. You can jot this as a bonus note, but um, basically in Romans 1, here's a little definition of what sin is. You can put that up on the screen. Sin is anything that goes against God's will, God's design, or God's nature. If it goes against his will, he does have a will. If it goes against his design, he does have an order. If it goes against his nature, he he is a personal being and he he is certain things. If it goes against His nature, then that's what sin really is. And our list of sins we've been covering would be, you can jot this down first, false, feudal thoughts. Uh, we've, we've already covered this one, so this is kind of a review note, but false, feudal thoughts, you can put that one up there. And what that means is lies about God. Lies about God that we believe, lies about how God treats us, lies about who God is, which would result in, in other religions, other worldviews. So false, feudal thoughts would be um, one source of sin. And now, now it moves on here. The next one is this, dishonorable dark desires. So false, futile thoughts and then dishonorable dark desires. We started on that one last week and we're continuing on that one and others this week. So it says in verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here you have a former Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, uh, struggled and tried to live his life in a godly way, and he's now talking about them. He's talking about Those people, and there's a group of people he's describing, those who just aren't making really any concerted effort to try and please God. They're just living life the way that God disapproves of, and and he's talking about how that uh, is, is sinful. He categorizes several different things here. So dark, dishonorable desires. Last week included sexual sin, but it also includes in this list covetousness, malice, envy, There's a problem with materialism. So let's let's, uh, camp on a few of these for a little while. When it comes to covetousness, uh, a dark and evil desire could be the desire to really get stuff to secure you, to promote you, and and to set your heart on the things of this world. You lust after money. You want the, the newest, the best, more of it. And you think that if you have those things, bigger, better, newer, you will be safer and you will be more satisfied. The problem is money uh, makes promises to us that only God can keep. And money lies to you when you have it because you have me, you're fine, you're great. Lie, lie. And money lies to you when you don't have it. Oh, if you only had me, you'd be safer. You'd be more secure. You'd be happier. You Lie, lie, lie. All right, you could lose everything tomorrow and Jesus would be enough to satisfy your heart for an eternity, an eternity. Money lies. And if you set your heart on getting money and keeping money and flaunting money, that's covetousness. And that's a dishonorable and dark desire. Money is a God replacement. And if you live for stuff, you lose God. What good is it, the Bible says, for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So the more you set your heart on getting everything, the more your soul departs from you. These are such strong warnings about about money And here's the truth. When Judgment Day comes around, there will be an entire section of your judgment on money. And every penny you've ever spent is going to be accounted for and laid out on the table for evaluation. And angels make heavenly accountants. Oh, you might be able to fool the IRS. uh, But when God gets his accounting team on the job, every penny that you've spent will be laid bare before a holy God. What then will be said of your heart? A man named Herman Walk said this about financial corruption. He said, income tax returns are the most imaginative fiction being written today. It's true. And I don't know what your books say. I don't know how accurate they are or how your dealings are financially. But in Matthew 6.21, we'll put that on the screen, it says this. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hearts follow treasure. Where your money goes, your heart follows. And so wherever that money has gone, shows your God, shows your heart, shows your passion, shows your priority. Uh, and, And that will be a big part of our evaluation. The Bible says that we are not to store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. We are to store up our treasure where? In heaven. And how do we do that? We do that by investing in God's kingdom purposes. Doing that, we do that by taking care of those who don't have. We do that uh, by not trying to stockpile in a massive fortune here that we can just sit on and be worshipped for, but, but we use our heart to worship our true God. Uh, we use our, our money to worship our true God. And, and if we won't use our money to worship our true God, that means it has become our God. So how are you doing on that? Area. Dishonorable dark desires include covetousness, also envy. This is where it's not really the stuff you have that's consuming you, it's the stuff they have. And you can't stop thinking about what they have, what he has, what she has. Your neighbor got it, your sister got it, and you don't have 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 it. And the b- broken record keeps repeating, and you're stuck on what you don't have and what they do have. And that is a prescription for disaster. When it comes to dark, dishonorable desires, we have to guard our heart, um, because if we live for stuff, if we flaunt it, if we cheat and steal to get it, if we moan about what we don't have, this will all be laid bare, and it's sin. So dishonorable, dark desires is kind of one category that we see here. Here's another one. Another category of sins would be lawless, harmful actions, lawless, harmful actions. Included in this group would be murder, strife inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish ruthless lot lot that we could uh talk about here but it says disobedient to parents and i know parents of children and teenagers are thinking preach that preacher right (laughs) tell my kids about judgment day and if they don't honor their parents they're gonna get it that's true how, how is your relationship to your parents? This will be a big basis of judgment in the high courts of heaven. A whole section will be, now let's move on. It'll take a few months. Now let's move on to the section of how you've treated your parents. Will that be an uh-oh moment for you? Uh, I mean, heaven forbid there should be some people in the room who have their, their relationship with their parents is completely dead and it's your choice. Uh, Let this be a word to you to perhaps open that doorway back up. Or maybe things are just perpetually dysfunctional and you're not really taking the steps to bring it to a better place. But God really cares about our relationship with our parents. There's going to be a whole section on mom and dad. And the truth is you can't be at war with your parents and at peace with your God. The Bible doesn't allow that option. So how is that? And then Really, this is kind of an issue with authority because authority begins in the home and then it moves to the, the church, the world, the school. So how are you doing at displaying submission to authority uh, with those who are in control around you at school, in the world, at your work? Because some of these sins like being foolish, ruthless, strife, being inventors of evil, those are all kind of like you versus the man, you versus them, like you're, you're not going to submit to them out there. Uh, even murder, you know, I'm going to take my enemies out if I have to. These are lawless, harmful actions. How are you doing it? displaying submission to authority? The, the opposite of that is if you've totally given up from that, you are an inventor of evil. Uh, you, you've gotten to the point where um, you're basically trying to get away with everything and, and profit from it. Lawless, harmful actions. Are you, are you profiting from corruption? Are you dreaming up ways to take advantage of people so that they won't know it and you won't get caught? Have you systematically warped your mind in your life so that you are, you are taking advantage of other people and more for you and less for them? And oh well, suckers born every minute, their fault. They should know. Is that your heart? Because if you're inventing ways to exploit people or to take advantage of them, these are lawless, harmful uh, actions. So you've got... False, futile thoughts, you've got dishonorable dark desires, and you've got lawless, harmful actions, thoughts, desires, actions, and then jot this down, corrupt speech. New section would be corrupt speech, and and here in this category would include deceit, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. So breaking this down further, you would have things that you said about others, words that you said about others. Um, And I'm sure there are things that you have said before that if it became known that you said that about someone else, there would be consequences. Um, If you took your phone and gave it to the person next to you, the stranger next to you, and said, you're free to look through my entire phone all week long, just give it back to me next week, would you worry about texts they saw or emails you sent, like things you said, would you worry, oh, they're going to see that, right? Teenager, if your parent is sitting next to you, you're like, I'm in trouble if mama gets to take my phone all. And that's just your phone. What if your entire heart was searched and laid bare and everything you ever said was replayed I'm really worried about this part of the judgment. Every word that I've ever said being replayed, corrupt speech being sifted through, things I've said about my family, my friends, my enemies, all of it. The Bible says that every careless word will be brought into judgment. There'll be a whole verbal section of, of judgment. Play the tape, angels, play the t- And there's your voice, 13-year-old you. You're like, I was so young, doesn't matter. And... and 20, and 30, and 40, and 50-year-old you. Play it again. Yikes. Are you ready for that? And then it also includes things you said about God. So, haters of God. So, what have you said about God? What have have you said about God? I don't know your story, but I, I was raised going to church periodically, but I just never believed any of it, and God was Um, there but I didn't know if I liked him And, and really my rebellion culminated at moments where I was angry with God, furious with God, literally cursing God with my mouth and those tapes will be replayed on the judgment day. Everything you've said about God and then what you said about yourself. This is a big one too. What do you say about you? And there's the braggers and the boasters and the, look, here's who I am. And everybody needs to know what I've done, the bragging and the boasting. We're also, doesn't mention this here, but you'll be held accountable for some of the bad things you say about yourself. The enemy loves to get you to really not like yourself. You're saying untrue things about yourself. And remember, God created you and loves you. So we can be harmful to ourselves verbally as well. Are you ready for every word you've ever spoken to be replayed in the courts of heaven? And I'm in bigger trouble than you because the Bible says teachers will be judged more strictly, which means every one of my sermons is going to be evaluated for the content. That's sobering. What did he say about me in that sermon? Was he accurate in that point? Wow, that is scary. So what is sin? False, futile thoughts, dishonorable, dark desires, lawless, harmful actions, corrupt speech. Who is guilty of sin is the second question the text asks. You can jot that down. Number two, who is guilty of sin? And it goes on in verse uh, 32 to say, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Uh, The entire purpose of the first few chapters is to show how fallen our world is and to assign blame accordingly. Uh, Do you agree that the world is really bad? Do you agree? Agree or disagree? The world is really bad. Do you agree? I mean, if you look around based on the headlines or the history classes you've taken and you're like, it's paradise. I don't know what news channel you watch. I'll subscribe because sometimes I want to get actually away from reality and hear some good things. But it's really bad. And uh, every generation thinks it's going to get better. World War I, the war to end all wars. Oops. Oops. It'll all be over after this one. Oops. We think it's going to get better, but it's not. So the Bible is trying to figure out where this is coming from and who's at fault. And we live in a day where people are really in denial over the true nature of the problem. Politicians in America used to be able to talk openly about our problem with God. Listen to Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said this about the Civil War. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of Civil War, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted on us for our presumptuous Sins. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. President, we have forgotten God. Can you even imagine if that speech was given by any of the last four presidents? We have forgotten God. We're being punished for our sin. Ah! I don't think the news channels would be like, amen, he's on to something. We're suffering for our sin. We've forgotten God. Who would amen that? Times have changed. That was in 1863 when the idea came into the president's mind that we should have a national day of fasting. Imagine that. President Trump announced, we're all going to fast for our country. Because God, we're going to get it if we don't. Times have changed. We talked openly about the problem of sin before. Not so anymore. So jot this down. Who's guilty of sin? The Bible first just talked to those who sin proudly. Write that down. Those who sin proudly. Paul talked about them. Those people out there. They, just, they, they don't care. They're sinning and they don't care about it. They're sinning proudly. No desire to change. This is who I am. This is what life is all about. I'm chasing the money. I'm in it for the sex. I want all the power, and there's nothing that will stop me. And there are many people around you who live that way. There is no restraint. As long as they don't go to jail, they will, they will get everything they want out of this life, and they will run over anyone they have to to get there. And the Bible condemns such people, those who sin proudly. You know Hugh Hefner, playboy for life. He died recently recently. And very interesting to hear him reflect on his life and justify his life. And here's what he said as he reflected on his, the fact that we die. He says this, I'm very comfortable with the nature of life and death and that we come to an end. But who knows? Maybe you become part of the eternal whatever. This is a man who built his life on sexual sin, living with no fear of judgment. And listen to what he says. I'm very comfortable with the nature of life and death that we come to an end. Who knows? Maybe you become part of the eternal whatever. This is a man who is living in sin proudly and has no fear of judgment. The Bible condemns such people. The foolishness of such a godless life. Those who sin proudly will come into judgment. Chat this down. Then there's those who support sin. Those who support sin. Maybe you're not doing it, but you're high-fiving it. That's so cool! That's so awesome! I am for that! And it's those who support it. It says here in verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These are the people who are supporting sin. Or maybe maybe you're not the one who's doing it, but you're profiting from it. You have set it up where you're, you're gaining from the demise, the hurt, the downfall of others. You're, you're profiting from it. Therefore, you're approving it, you're endorsing it, you're even financing it so that you can get the rewards of that. The Bible condemns that. And we do always promote what we prefer, don't we? We promote what we prefer. And so if you're a promoter of this, you you prefer it, and the Bible says we're going to be judged for what, what we approve of. When uh, Facebook came out, there's a lot of talk about Facebook, right? And it was cool that you could like something, like, and uh, somebody in our church, a young adult, was reflecting on that and how something something he had posted got like tons of likes, and he's like, I like when people like what I'm liking. Don't we all? Don't we all? Don't we all like when people like what we're liking? The Bible says that we have to be careful what we're liking because it's not just what you're doing, it's what you're supporting and promoting and preferring and profiting from that will be weighed on Judgment Day. Who's guilty of sin? Those who sin proudly. Those who support sin. Jot this down, and then he changes audiences. Those who think they aren't the problem. So in chapter 2, verse 1 now, he changes audiences. He says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man... So this is a literary device here where he, he turns to an imaginary person and starts talking to him. All right, you. So he's talking to these those people out there. They're ruthless, foolish, faithless. And then he goes, and you, oh man. He says, every one of you who judges have no excuse. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Here's what he's doing. He just railed on the world. The sin of the world. I mean, he just gave quite a rant and quite a list. And in in the background, he knows someone standing there going like this Amen. It's bad out there. Those people are ruining it. Decent people like us know how things used to be. And those people out there, and Paul turns to that guy and he's like, And you're next. You're next. This is the person who Paul used to be, the the judge, the legalist, the moralist, the religious person who looks down on everyone else and thinks that the evil, the wickedness of the world is outside, ruining everything. This is the good citizen. This is the church attender. This is the person who can't believe how bad it's getting out there. This is the self-righteous person. The Apostle Paul is saying, hello up there! You're next, you who stand in judgment over a sinful world. These are the people who don't think they're the problem. These are the self-righteous people. And what does he say? He says, you have no excuse because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that The judgment of God righteously falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is where the title of the sermon comes from. Will you escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Do you think you will escape the judgment of God because you're better than other people? Because you're not as bad as those people out there. The, The Bible is now challenging you. Those of you who were thinking you'll be graded on a curve because you're not as bad as your neighbor or your sister or your dad, you're not as bad. And so you think that you will escape the judgment. And the Apostle Paul is saying that's not the way it works. If you think you're not part of the problem, that's a problem. British journalist G.K. Chesterton once read a newspaper article, and the article asked this What is wrong with the world today? And they were willing to receive submissions from the readers What is wrong with the world today? So G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter to the editor which read this, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Do you admit that? What's wrong with the world is me. I'm contributing to the wickedness in this world. I'm the problem. God is a judge of all, and he will... He will not pass over those who are really good at criticizing and fault-finding those out there, but are letting themselves have a free pass for their own sin. If your hope of getting into heaven is that you're a good person, that you're not as bad as other people out there, the Bible is basically saying here, good people won't get saved. Good is not good enough. Religious is not religious enough. Uh, Those who have served their country well, that's not going to get you into heaven. It's not that you're a good citizen, or a patriot, or a good employee, or even a good mom, or a good dad, or a good church attender. None of that gets you favor with God. Those who think they aren't the problem are called out here. And I, I just have to take a moment to really uh, hammer this point for a second. There are many people here today who really think they're going to heaven, uh, but you're really wrong. And you think you're going to heaven because other people are worse than you. Um, And here's the problem with that thinking. You're relying on the sins of others to get you in. That's a bad reason to get into heaven. Their sin is so bad, therefore mine isn't. So the sin of other people is going to be your savior? That's what's going to get you in? It's it's warped reasoning to think that other people's badness will somehow make you good. God is introduced here as a judge. He says here in verse 2, The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And then it goes on to say, do you think you'll escape the judgment of God? Which means God is a judge. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? It goes on to say, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So God is a judge and his judgment is coming. A lot of people have a problem with this and some people have, misinterpreted the Bible. So have you heard people say before, the Bible says judge not? How many of you have heard people say that before? the Bible says judge not? That's been so taken out of context. The point there of that judgment is a person who's got a, a plank, a two-by-four sticking out of their eye, Okay, walks over to someone who's got a little sawdust in their eye and says, oh, you foolish sinner, Allow me to get that sawdust out of your eye. The hypocrisy of that is what's being called into question. But how many people in this illustration have a sin problem? Two. Two for two. So what does the Bible say to do? First, take the board out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to help remove the speck or the thorn out of the other person's eye. So, when the Bible says don't judge, it's forbidding a form of judgment, hypocritical judgment. I'm better than you, and therefore you're the problem. That's forbidden. But the Bible actually says that we should judge ourselves. The Bible says examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And the Bible says to test the spirits, the teachers out there. So, there's supposed to be examination and judgment happening, but it's supposed to be based on God as the judge. Sometimes people have a problem with God as a judge. Well, I would never, I would never. Follow a God who sends people to hell. How many of you have heard people say that before? How can I follow a God who would send people to hell? If God sends people to hell, I'm not in. I think the real question is, could you truly worship a God who allows people to get away with sin? Because often those people who say, I can't follow a God who sends people to hell will rage against the God who allows a shooting to happen or, uh, or forest fires to ruin communities, natural disasters. Which is it? Which is it? Do you want a God who is actively getting evil out of the world and suffering out of the world? Or do you want a God who's hands off and just lets you live the life that you want to live? You can't have it both ways. And here's the truth. The truth is that as Christians, we truly want God to remove all evil from the world. Not just some of it, all of it. That includes the evil in our hearts. And God as a judge is determined to get all wickedness, evil, suffering Out of the world, but it hasn't happened yet, and therefore we can misinterpret what kind of a judge God is. God is a God who will justly punish all sin, therefore, the nature of God's judgment is it will be comprehensive, it will be complete, it will also be fair. Every page of God's judgment will be 100% accurate. If you're afraid he's going to get it wrong on somebody, how could he send a good person to hell? If you're afraid he's going to get it wrong, it's not like in heaven you're going to have a little red pen and you're going to go through God's judgments and find errors. All right, You go out into the Cook County Courthouse and you will find errors. You go up into the heavenly courthouse and you will find no mistake, none. Um, therefore, God's judgment will be perfect. <clears throat> we will be justly condemned. And the Bible here teaches that there will, there will only be Two outcomes, two destinations after the day of wrath. There will be those who go one way and those who go the other. So jot this down, number three. Who will be saved? What is sin? Who is guilty of sin, number two. And who will be saved, number three. It says in verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Well, this is it. Two options. Which one do you want? Eternal life, immortality, glory? Uh, do Do you want... honor, peace forever, or, or do you want unrighteousness, wrath, fury, tribulation, distress? A choice is laid before you. It's one of two ways. And some commentators have said it sounds here like he's talking about earning your salvation, but in context, he's really not. He's talking about the fruit that comes from those who are seeking immortality, meaning, meaning there are belief issues and there are behavior issues. And for those who are saved, there will be a change in belief and a change in behavior that's measurable. In Romans 1.16, we'll put it up on the screen, it says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's believing the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you, that converts you, that forgives you, that changes you. And, And that's a great question for you to ask yourself, are you a saved person? I didn't say, are you a moral person or a decent person or, or are you kind to animals or have you raised your children well? None of that gets you to heaven. Are you a saved person? Are you a rescued person? That's the question. Those who are rescued and saved will bear fruit. And here in this passage, it talks about those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and those God will give eternal life. You can't do that naturally. If you could, you'd be saved. Sure, if, if you could spend your whole life seeking the good of others and and honoring God, then you'd be saved. But you can't. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. So you can't do it. But when Jesus converts and saves you, then you begin to bear that fruit of being able to please Him. Who will be saved? Those Those who are converted. Who will be condemned? Those who are storing up wrath for themselves. Those who are mistaking God's patience with His endorsement. Those who are thinking, well, nothing bad has happened yet. God must be okay with it. Listen to the description of our God. It says in verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why is God allowing so many bad things in this world? Why has God allowed so many hurtful things in your life? We have a a kind God who who forbears with those who are sinning. Uh, We have a loving God who waits for the repentance of sinners. Sure, you might say, I wish God would just prevent bad things from happening and bad people from doing bad things. But what you're asking for is for God to stop some evil. Some. And if he were to come down and micromanage your life, you'd get tired of it real fast. If he's like, okay, I'm going to stop you from doing every bad thing you'll ever do. You see, it's not enough to ask that God would stop some evil. We have to desire for him to get rid of all of it. And if he were to do that, the world would be gone in a second. And eternity would begin. So be careful what you wish for and value a God who is kind and patient with the wicked. Do you know the person in the Bible who oversaw the greatest revival in the Bible? Hundreds of thousands of people being saved. Do you know who that was? Jonah. Jonah saw by far the great. more people got saved under Jonah's ministry than under Jesus' ministry when he was on the earth. And what did Jonah do with it? Did he praise God? No, he went and whined, right? I pray that I would die. Why? Because it was his enemies that got saved. Jonah was a prophet who didn't want the wicked to get saved. This is the man who saw the greatest revival in the Bible, and he couldn't stand it. Let that not be our hearts. May we not resent a God who is kind and forbearing to the wicked and patient. And then it says that's meant to lead us to repentance, but our hard and impenitent hearts store up wrath for ourselves. Who will be saved? Those who repent. The wicked who repent will be saved. Jot that down if you haven't already. Those who repent will be saved. This is a challenge to leave your life of sin, to admit your guilt, to renounce your sinful patterns, and to walk in newness of life. Are you a repentant person? Repentance means you're going in one direction and you turn full around. It's a turning. It's a turning away from the life that you've been living from the thoughts that you've been thinking. It's a turning away from that to Christ and then a following of Christ for the rest of your life. Has there been a time in your life where you have repented, where you have turned away? And this includes your beliefs and your behaviors. You've turned away from the beliefs and behaviors that dishonor God and you've turned to the cross, to the Savior who died for you. When did that happen? When did that happen? If you have a salvation story You're likely a saved person. If you don't have a story, you have to wonder if you're even saved. We have a baptism service next weekend. And I would challenge anybody who hasn't gone public in admitting that Jesus is their Savior and Lord to finally nail that down. Tell the church that you're a saved person, that you've repented of your sin. And then go and tell the world. But the Bible says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then bear fruit that shows that a godly transformation has taken place. Check out John 5, 24. We'll put that on the screen. Here's what it says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What a verse. How do you escape God's judgment? Hear the word of Christ, believe him, the Father who sent him, and you have eternal life. David Bruskus says the Bible is not a book of rules to live by. The Bible is a book about a person to live for. Are you living for that person who died to save you? Those who repent are saved. And then jot this down. Those who are rescued by Jesus go to heaven. Those who are rescued by Jesus. Rescue is what you need. How many of you know of Johnny Erickson Tata? Raise your hand if you know of Johnny Erickson Tata. Her story is 17-year-old girl, just graduated high school, religious, not really a Christ follower, And uh, she had just graduated high school, two weeks out. Her whole life was coming up. She'd been accepted to a college. She wanted to get married. She was from an athletic family. She had a life planned out. Her sister said, let's go for a swim. They went into Chesapeake Bay. She swam out to one of those little rafts floating not far from the shore. Her feet never touched on the way out to it, so she didn't realize how shallow the water was. Dove in first. Her head snapped back. She cracked her neck. She was instantly paralyzed, From the shoulders down floating face down in the water and her sister didn't see her dive in her sister was turned the other way so there she was conscious through the whole thing wondering if her sister saw and just at that point her sister reported later that she was actually walking out to go back on shore and a crab pinched her foot and she jumped up and turned around and she saw her sister's hair floating in the water few seconds later, who knows if she would have even seen that. She swam out and saved her sister's life and dragged her back to shore. Johnny Erickson Tata knows what it means to be rescued physically, to be saved from death. Then they took her to the hospital and and bad news after bad news. Her body was broken. Her neck was broken. She would never walk again. She could move her arms a little bit. She would never feel her hands again. Uh, Her entire life as she had planned it out was gone. Gone life in a wheelchair, rehabilitation, fighting for the very basics of movement. She began to wonder who would love her, who would marry her, what kind of a life would she live. She started to have suicidal thoughts. She wanted to end her life. She really hit rock bottom when she realized she couldn't even kill herself. And then she started talking to God. She started talking to Christ. And there as she laid all alone, depressed and suicidal, she said, God, I can't die. I can't kill myself. So help me to live for you. That was her prayer. Help me to live for you. Some of her friends began coming up and visiting her and opening the Bible and talking to her about Christ and by faith saying, God can use this. He's not done with you. Jesus can use you. She gave her life to Christ. She said, use this life and then bring me to a better life in the next world where I can walk and sing and dance. And that was her prayer. She went on to sell a book that sold, <clears throat> write a book that sold 3 million copies. She, began an, she became an international sensation as she shared her story. And she started to help, devote her life to helping handicapped children and adults, giving them camps, giving them opportunities, telling them about Jesus. She gave her life to Christ. She celebrated 50 years recently in a wheelchair, 50 years of following the Lord Jesus with all of her heart. And does she have hurt feelings? Does she have doubt? Yes, she does. But she doesn't regret her choice to give her life to Christ. And about that wedding, about that marriage, there was a man who was coming to church uh, week after week sitting behind her, and she didn't know it, but he fell in love with her. And he started working out at the gym, and his friends were like, what are you doing? Working out. Why are you working out? There's a girl I like. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask her out. Really? You just want to impress her with your muscles? No, I, I think I might actually have to carry her to the date. What? What? And he asked her out, and he got fit because he wanted to take care of her, and they got married, and it's been like 35 years now they've been married, Johnny Erickson, Tata. What a life God gave to her. She devoted her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. She knows that she has been rescued physically, and she knows she has been rescued spiritually. And Jesus gave her a life here that she could have never hoped for, an influence here she could have never planned, and she knows that the next life is going to be even better, Johnny Erickson Tata says, heaven is about to happen, and I can hardly wait. Is that your heart? Have you been rescued here spiritually? I want to give you an opportunity right now to get ready for the judgment. To get ready for the judgment by giving your life over to the one who died to save you. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes, and let's pray to God together. Father, I know that there are some who walked in here today not confident where they stand with you. And Lord, what a troubling thought for them to realize that they are stuck in their sins and that judgment is coming. They are face down in the water and the end is near. Then they'll have no hope. But Father, I know that your word has challenged the hearts of some here to repent, to call out to the one who can rescue them and pull them out of the waters of sin to save them forever. Father, I just give those a chance here this morning to ask for a rescue from Jesus. To say, Jesus... Pull me up out of the waters of sin. Save me for all the wrong that I've done. You died on the cross to take away my sin. You live to bring me safely to heaven. I trust my life to you. Lord, I just pray for those who are crying out to a rescue from heaven, that you would give them peace like they could never understand. Show them this life can have purpose that they could never plan out. Show them that heaven is about to happen. The best is yet to come. As they entrust their souls to you, Jesus, I pray that they would live to please you, to honor you. And they enjoy the freedom of being forgiven from everything. That the day of judgment, they will pass through. And they will be with you forever and eternity. Not because of anything they've done, but because of what you did on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your great salvation. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.